Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. All right, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 27. We have a lot to discover today. A lot to discover today. We're continuing our series, Kingdom Come. As you're turning there or scrolling there, I have a question for you. Are, are there any everyday things that scare you? Are there any everyday things that scare you? Um, there are everyday things that uh, kind of creep me out. Uh, I won't go into those, but I kind of searched online to see if there are common things that uh, scare us that are everyday things. Um, and these were some of the most common ones I found, okay? So let me know if any of these resonate with you. Uh, I searched online and found that people are scared of walking on an empty street alone at night. Kind of in the fall when the wind's blowing, the leaves are rustling. What was that? You know, walking on an empty street alone at night. This was interesting to me. Looking in an unfamiliar mirror. Looking in an unfamiliar mirror. What's behind you? Dangling your feet over the edge of your bed. There's nothing down there except photo albums and shoes and demons. (laughs) Seeing a clown. Seeing a clown. That's... Not me, maybe you. Just got kind of weird in here, but that's okay. Uh, Having to investigate a strange noise when you're home alone. Yeah. Was that a car horn? But the sort of nervousness of impending conviction. Like you're, like can't we just read Psalms (laughs) or something? The words of Jesus can, can, can make us nervous. As Steve reminded us last, uh, two weeks ago, uh, sometimes we read the words of Jesus and it makes us instantly ask the question, what did he say? Wait, 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 wait. Read that again? And that gives way to what is to me the even more nerve-wracking question of what's he going to say next? What's Jesus going to say next? Our series is called Kingdom Come, the way of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount can be downright intimidating. It can make us nervous because what is Jesus going to say? What is Jesus going to say? If you're in your Bible right now, you can look at some of the uh, sub-chapter headings of paragraphs, you know. By the way, those are totally inspired of the Holy Spirit and completely intended by the original authors of Scripture. And if you look at those, you'll see some words like murder, judging others, an eye for an eye, oaths, stuff like that. What's Jesus going to say? What's Jesus going to say? In our portion of Matthew 5 today, you'll see some words like adultery or lust and divorce. What's Jesus going to say? Those are weighty terms. And I would venture to say, all joking aside, that they probably touch most of us in this room in some way, directly or indirectly. These words and topics can give us pause. And we're not just going to plow into them. Because that's not what Jesus does either. We're going to ask the question about how Jesus is approaching his hearers and what he's illustrating through these topics. We're not going to avoid them because Jesus doesn't, but we're going to discover what he's illustrating through them. This is not a sermon on lust. It's not a sermon on adultery. It's not a sermon on divorce. And we're not going to duck those topics, but this is not where the Bible completely speaks on those things. So this is not the focus of where we're going to be today. And Jesus isn't summing them up here either. But he does have specific reasons for referencing them. Because his hearers, they were impactful on their lives. 
So the first rule of sound biblical interpretation is we have to understand what the original writer or sayer was saying to his or her hearers. Everyone can study the Bible when we remember this, this first rule. In fact, you are all biblical scholars. In fact, say this with me. I am a biblical scholar. Take your tassel and move it over here. Perfect. I'm not, I'm, I, I just want to demystify that. We can be in the word and ask the question, who is saying what to whom? And we can start there. So what is Jesus doing? What is he establishing? What, what's he up to in the Sermon on the Mount? If you have heard me preach ever, you know that one of my favorite questions to ask is, what is someone not doing? <laughs> it's usually a good doorway into what they are doing. So I want to ask the question first, what is Jesus not doing in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is not describing a religion. Jesus is not describing a religion. He is not describing a method or a checklist or a measuring rod to achieve righteousness. He's not doing that. We have to, Jesus is describing righteousness, but not as a checklist. Does that make sense? He's not describing achievement because that's religion. We have to actively resist reading the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that way, kind of as a topic-by-topic religious checklist. If we read it that way, then it kind of becomes Jesus playing the old-timey religious classics and just kind of knocking them down. Murder, pff, divorce, pff, this is what I think. And it becomes, and it's, it's funny, but it becomes, it becomes really kind of knee-jerk, thin answers to, let's be honest, thick questions. That's not what Jesus is giving. He's not playing the old-timey hits. Instead, he's encouraging our hearts with a picture of righteousness and if we, if we let this pile up like religion, then those topics can kind of pile on top of us and begin to crush us under the weight of achieving them or, or getting through them in a checklist like religion. And if back-breaking religious crushing feels off to you when you think of the words of Jesus, you're right, it should. Jesus himself says that that's not the intention ever of his words or ever of following him. In Matthew chapter 11, just a few chapters later, in verse 28, most of you know this passage well. Jesus says to his listeners, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Take how I will give you God's word. Take how I will tell you to express and follow and obey God's word. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is just not playing all the religious hits. He's not. Jesus' words are not here to scare us. They're here to free us. Jesus' words are not here to break us. They're here to restore us. Jesus, his intention is not to pile on the achievables to his hearers. The Pharisees, the ruling religious class of the day, they already used God's law to do that. And we're going to talk more about that soon. We have to settle this in our hearts that Jesus is offering a welcome to us with these words, even though they are hard. Even though they are hard. So even though Jesus is not expressing a religion to us, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, you may be thinking to yourself, but it does seem like Jesus is at minimum instructing us in some way, in some parts of it. And you're right. Jesus doesn't avoid instruction on the Sermon on the Mount. And we, we, can't, we can't allow ourselves to think he does that. I mean, just in Matthew chapter 5 alone, there's a few examples, and I didn't even list them all. So don't get mad at me if I don't, if I don't list your favorite one. But in verse 24... 
Jesus reminds his hearers, if you have a fence between, if there's a fence between you and your brother or sister and you're worshiping, leave your gift at the altar and first go and be reconciled to them, then come back and offer your gift. That's instructive. Just one verse later, settle matters quickly with your adversary. That's instructive. Later on, when he's talking about giving an oath or swearing by heaven or earth, he just says, all you need to say is your yes or your no. And then one that I'm sure we all know, if you've, if you've read through the Sermon on the Mount, is later on in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is being instructive. So if Jesus is, is giving instruction, but he's not being religious, that's not what Jesus is doing. What is Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? If he's not describing a religion, Jesus is describing a kingdom. He's describing a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this description of the kingdom comes with an invitation. And that invitation is twofold that I see. Firstly, it's an invitation for us to see God's kingdom. Secondly, it's an invitation for us to join God's kingdom. And kingdom, we must remind ourselves, is different than religion, right? Religion centers around who? Me. And what I have to do, what I must accomplish or achieve in order to gain something. In this case, righteousness or or holiness. A kingdom centers around a king, and God's kingdom centers around the king, the person of Jesus Christ, and what he freely gives, and we'll see what that is soon. It's a crucial distinction for us, and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm hitting on it because I, kingdom is, is a great word. It can be a little bit of a buzzword, and what we can sometimes mean but when we say kingdom, if we say it enough, is really cozy religion. It's not religion. It's a crucial distinction because the king and the kingdom that we submit to will determine everything about our life. It will determine everything. So firstly, Jesus invites, to see, invites us to see God's kingdom. You guys okay? It's quiet without kids. Yeah. Jesus invites us to see God's kingdom. Jesus is doing what I like to call painstakingly laying a foundation for our revelation. He's laying a foundation for our revelation. And you know my penchant for things that rhyme, so I'm not sorry. A foundation for our revelation. He is clearly, patiently taking the eyes and the hearts of his hearers. And he is just turning them, just teaching them, just nudging them to see God's perspective all around them. We have called sometimes what Jesus is showing them the upside-down kingdom because the kingdom of God is in such contrast to the world, right? So it's the upside-down kingdom. I actually think it's the kingdom of the world that's upside-down because we rebelled. The world is in active rebellion against the kingdom of God. So it's as if Jesus is taking his, his hearers and going, you know, you are actually on your head. Let me um, just, yep, just, oh, good, perfect, sweet. Oh, yes, feel that? Feel that happening? equilibrium he's beginning to let us see through God's perspective have you ever seen a commercial on tv for a new tv it's an existential experience yeah so our tv at home our tv at home it's seven years old I know I know I know it's a Westinghouse right okay you ever heard of that brand neither have I so sometimes what will happen is I'll be watching on my TV and like the latest Samsung or something, a commercial for it will come on and they will be extolling the characteristics of this TV. Look at the deep blacks and the bright whites and the color and the hue. And they're like, this is an amazing TV. Here's the problem. I'm seeing that TV 
on my Westinghouse TV. So while I'm sure it's great, it's very different from me walking into Best Buy and going, Then I'm experiencing the TV. Jesus is saying, why don't we take you away from the Westinghouse of religion and let's get you in front of God's perspective, of God's kingdom. Jesus is not just theorizing what God's kingdom might look like. He's taking God's ways and he's removing our blinders. And this only comes as a gift from God with his revelation. And how about the gift of the person of Jesus Christ, who is God's word incarnate in the flesh to bring that revelation? So Jesus, through his words and actions, and we'll get more to his actions soon, is inviting us to his way of seeing and his way of being. Seeing God's kingdom, changing what we see and what we expect to see. Inviting us to see the kingdom of God. Jesus also invites us to join the kingdom of God. To join the kingdom of God. This is early in Jesus' ministry. You could tell because this we're in Matthew 5 and not Matthew 20 something. That's for you. I am a biblical scholar. It's early in Jesus' ministry and he's making one thing clear. He is inviting anyone and everyone to the kingdom of God. And the way to join the kingdom of God is free. And it costs everything. It's free in the sense that there is absolutely nothing that his hearers or you and me can bring to the table to earn a position or getting into God's kingdom. It costs everything in that the whole identity of the one who wants to enter in must be submitted and given over to the person of Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord. Here's what I mean by that. We're early in Jesus' ministry, right? And who came before Jesus preparing the way of the Lord? John the Baptist. In Mark chapter 1, we see in verse 4, I love this phrasing. It says, John the Baptist came preaching a baptism. Preaching a baptism of repentance. Preaching an identifying act of repentance. Jesus in Matthew 4, one chapter before where we are, began to preach and teach, Repent, therefore, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What is this repentance? Repentance is a distinct and conscious turning away from our own ways and a distinct conscious submitting to the ways of another. It is a, it's quite literally a change of direction. And who does this repenting? You and me. And who becomes Lord? Jesus Christ. And what does that repentance lead to? Here's where we see what God gives. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. It'll be behind. But now apart from the law of righteousness, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This is what the Pharisees missed. This righteousness is given by faith, given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So follow me. We repent and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. That's putting our faith in him. God then freely gives righteousness to those who have believed. And why is this good news? Well, Jesus has already told us why in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 20, he tells his hearers, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I want you to see it, and I'm inviting you, but without the righteousness freely given by God, you will not enter into it. Jesus isn't talking about a righteousness you can achieve. He's talking about a righteousness we have to receive. We can't achieve it. So 
joining the kingdom of God requires righteousness. Only God can freely give the gift of righteousness. Repenting and making Jesus Christ Lord of our lives causes us to uh, causes God to give us that gift and us to receive it. Jesus is inviting us to join a kingdom. And if I may, hopefully, the Sermon on the Mount is getting a little less scary. It's getting a little less scary. And maybe, maybe it's just getting downright inviting. And for me, in my heart, I'm almost ready to approach these chapter subheadings of adultery and lust and divorce. Jesus invites us to see the kingdom of God. He invites us to join the kingdom of God. And there's one more area that I think Jesus is doing before we jump into our passage today. This, the passage is the end. This isn't the introduction. We are literally halfway through the sermon, so just everybody relax. <laughs> I saw every one of your faces. Don't hide it. Is he still starting? Jesus invites us to see the kingdom of God. He invites us to join the kingdom of God. And he does this by demonstrating the kingdom of God. Jesus is not ethereal. He's not, he's, he's not a philosopher. He doesn't postulate, sloganeer, think about what could be, might be, utopian possibility. He's demonstrating what he's talking about. Remember, we've already said this is early in Jesus' ministry, so he's laying that foundation for our revelation. And I see four particular ways that Jesus is doing this. Firstly, Jesus has been using parables to teach about the kingdom's construction. Jesus has been using parables to teach about the kingdom's construction. It actually is okay to read the other gospels at the same time and see what Jesus was doing early in his ministry to get the complete picture. I am a biblical scholar, right? So we see that up before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been using parables to teach about the kingdom's construction. He spoke in a way that people who weren't members of the religious elite, they could understand. Not dumbing it down, speaking it rightly to them. And he describes the kingdom of God over and over, and he uses phrases like, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed, and some of that seed is is received, some is not, and the seed that is received grows up and bears fruit. He uses another seed image to say that the kingdom of God is like a seed that, though it has a small beginning, grows and becomes the largest tree in the garden, and all the birds of the garden can come and take shelter, even from a small beginning, and on and on and on. But Jesus is using parables to teach about the kingdom's construction. Jesus performed signs and wonders to demonstrate the kingdom's command. Yes, Steve, these all do begin with C. He demonstrates the kingdom's command. You you ever think about how the Sermon on the Mount came to happen? Jesus did not pass out flyers and say, so I have a sermon. There is a mount. Hither come join and I will teach. No, no, no. why, Why are these people listening to Jesus I'm sorry, I read everything with humor, but how do do we get here? That's a fair question. Well, immediately preceding the the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 4, we can see what Jesus was doing. Read with me in verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And then probably the most obvious verse ever in Scripture, large crowds 
from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Of course they did. Of course they did. And Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, begins with this phrase. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went to the side of a mountain and began to teach them. Jesus is demonstrating God's kingdom, and that demonstration affords him the opportunity to teach about God's kingdom. And you know what? It's not only Jesus that gets to do that. You and I get to do that. You know, as Gary prays for someone over the phone, and God moves in power, that affords him the opportunity to speak about the kingdom of God. As we step out, and we just say, you know what, God, I want you to move in power I want you to move in power, not for my fame, not for my fame or success, but for the opportunity to declare who you are and what your kingdom is like. Jesus is demonstrating the kingdom's command through signs and wonders. Jesus contrasted the kingdom from lifeless religion. He contrasted the kingdom from lifeless religion. You know, the Pharisees, the ruling religious elite class, they had a prescription for righteousness. They had a prescription for righteousness. Jesus had a description of righteousness. You'll see Jesus use this phrase often in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it has been said, or as you know it has been said, or something to that effect. Why? He's debunking the impossible path to righteousness that the Pharisees have proclaimed. He's debunking it. The Pharisees' stance on righteousness was an outside-in approach to righteousness. It, It meant this. If you keep the fullness of the law to perfection. You, you don't lose any of the law or have any misstep. That's your exterior accomplishment. Then on the inside, you will be reckoned as righteous. Outside, in. Jesus' approach is exactly the opposite. Remember, we're dealing with a righteousness that is freely given from God. So instead of an outside, in Jesus, uh, righteousness, Jesus has an inside, out righteousness. It's a righteousness that is Freely given by God to those who believe in Jesus, seated in our hearts, which results in an outward expression of that righteousness. He's contrasting the kingdom with lifeless religion. You guys okay? Lastly, Jesus demonstrates the kingdom of God by making clear the characteristics of those who are in his kingdom. Jesus makes clear the characteristics of those in in his kingdom we've said before that jesus in the sermon on the mount is being descriptive and not prescriptive and that's true because jesus is not describing a way to achieve righteousness but we also see jesus in his words as he instructs us it, it needs to remind us that righteousness is not a spectator sport Righteousness is not a spectator sport. It makes itself known in our lives it has an effect the biblical expression for that is it bears fruit It bears fruit. What is inside, seated inside, is naturally programmed to bring that exact thing out. Steve used the example a few weeks ago of if you plant a pear tree, you do not grow an apple tree. Because it's not programmed to do that. What that pear tree is, it bears. So therefore, we don't approach Jesus' words passively. We don't just say, I'm going to kick back in grace and... Ride out this Sermon on the Mount. It's dangerous. And that's not what Jesus is saying. We should see what he's describing in our lives. 
So in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus invites us to see the kingdom of God. He invites us to join the kingdom of God, all while demonstrating the kingdom of God. And we have taken 90% of our time together on these truths because it's necessary to have them in our heart as we proceed. It's necessary to. So let's read our passages today on adultery, lust, and divorce because they're not scary. Jesus is ever inviting, kingdom describing, and righteous fruit indicating in his words. So many hyphens on this page, you don't even want to see it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, remember, you have heard that it was said, he's debunking the lifeless religion. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Not scary. Jesus is reseating, not receding, reseating righteousness in its rightful place. You see, the Pharisees' righteousness was possible outwardly while being completely unrighteous inside and of heart. You could not commit adultery while completely harboring lust, and you would pass for righteous with the Pharisees. This misses the whole point of God's original law anyway, but that's another sermon for another time, and you'll be glad to hear that I'm not preaching it right now. It's a righteousness of action alone. Jesus is describing a righteousness of heart. It's the righteousness that's present in the kingdom of God he's inviting us to see and join. And he uses great hyperbole to make his point, does he not? It's this inside-out Righteousness. You know, the story is told of this woman, this widow, who was very wealthy and lived at the top of a hill overlooking a small town. And most of the town actually drew their employment from the the estate of this old widow. But the most prestigious job that everyone in the town wanted was to be the old widow's chauffeur because you got to spend the most time with her alone. And she was so intriguing. So it came to pass that her chauffeur passed away. And she needed a new chauffeur. So she actually put an ad in the town's newspaper. And she said, I'm looking for a new chauffeur. If you would like to apply for the job, please write me a letter and answer this question. How close can you drive my car to the edge of the cliff on the hill that leads down to the town from my, from my estate? So everybody got right to it. They wanted this job. They're, some people were saying, oh, I'll drive you a couple feet from, the, from that cliff. And when people realized that people were using feet, they said, oh, I'm going to go to inches. I'll get you a couple inches from the edge of that cliff. And then on down and on down. And I'm not scientific enough to know how close it probably ended up not mattering because it's just really close. But a week later, it was announced in the newspaper that the woman, the, the widow had made her decision. And a young man from the town had won the job of being her chauffeur. And everybody was blown away. They said, what, what was your answer? What did you answer to your question? And he said, I wrote one sentence. He said, my dear madam, I don't drive near the edge of cliffs. We safeguard what is precious. We don't flirt with the edge of danger on it. So if Jesus is describing a righteousness that sits in our hearts, 
then the things externally that begin to take our heart away from that, Jesus says, don't go there. And I don't need to preach to you about what those things are because they're the same things for me. I don't wake up every day as a married man and go, how close can I get to adultery today? (laughs) I'm not going to do it. It is silly. So you know what? Let's stop being silly. I'm not talking legalism. I'm talking wisdom. You know what? Unfollow those accounts. Turn off what you need to. Share with someone. Don't follow all the news for once. just got weird again in here we safeguard what is precious jesus is teaching us to guard righteousness where it lives in the heart and we do that by safeguarding ourselves from the things that we know will cause us to stumble so stop it when our hearts are safeguarded our righteousness will effortlessly make it out to the exterior of our lives and that's the righteousness of the kingdom of god let's continue and we're we're almost there matthew 5 uh, verse 31 jesus continues it has been said there's that phrase again Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Anybody want to come up and... Listen, I'm not here to, to, to make light of these things. This is not the sum total of Jesus' teaching on divorce. It's not the sum total of the Bible's teaching on divorce. In fact... If you want to see more of Jesus' discourse with the Pharisees on divorce, you should read Matthew 19, where he goes into the origins of what the Pharisees are saying here. But Jesus is explicitly referencing this. Why? Just as Jesus was reseating God's righteousness before, I believe Jesus is reseating God's design in its rightful place here. Let's take a moment to look at what the context is of Jesus' words here. And by the way, when I say look at the context, I don't mean how sometimes we mean look at the context of Scripture, like when we're not comfortable with something Scripture says, it's a little too tough, doesn't work out to today, and we go, well, it's context, different. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we look at context to enhance and clarify what Scripture is saying. And here's our context for what Jesus just said. Four words. It has been said. Jesus is very specifically, very intentionally addressing something. And that something is the flippant, careless, degrading, destructive nature with which particularly men were able to cast aside marriage at any rate and for any reason at that time. All because in the rabbinical law, they just had to give a certificate of divorce. Like some receipt for marriage. Jesus comes against this in a way by reminding us of the design that God has for marriage. It's not flippant. It's not entered and exited at will. That's not how God designed it. And whether we are married or unmarried in this room, Jesus is inviting us to understand God's design for marriage and how to honor it because righteousness is seated in our hearts and doesn't just come by way of exterior following of a law here and there. And to not do so is adulterous of heart, not just to one another, but to God's design in our hearts and actions. So, a few parting encouragements today, because while Jesus' words hopefully are not scary, they do carry weight. I'm not elevating parts of the Bible over, over others, I hope you hear me, but when Jesus speaks, 
I'm usually sitting down. (laughs) A few parting encouragements. Jesus clearly demonstrates that righteousness isn't achieved, but it does have to be guarded. Righteousness isn't achieved, but it does have to be guarded. It's not passive. It's not unintentional. No one ever woke up and said, I was accidentally righteous yesterday. (laughs) So, to me, a very specific question for my life comes up, and I want to ask, it for, for, ask you to ask it of your life as well, and that is, how am I actively guarding my heart and the righteousness that God has freely given unto me? How am I actively guarding it? Secondly, righteousness is given freely, and it must bear fruit. It will bear fruit. Righteousness is given freely, and it must bear fruit. And I think the question for us is, what, what is the fruit of your life? Again, this is not... This is not criticism or legalism or I don't want you leaving here going, well, James nailed me because I can't really think of anything. No, it's simply a question to put before the Lord. What is the fruit of your life? What comes out of you on a a daily basis? And lastly, an encouragement. Do you read the words of Jesus with religious fear or dismissive passivity? Do you read the words of Jesus with religious fear or dismissive passivity? Because he's inviting you to leave that. He's inviting you to leave that. And even right now, I have a sense that some in this room have maybe even avoided the words of Jesus because of that impending conviction, nervousness. That's not what Jesus is inviting you to. Yes, there will be conviction. And yes, he is describing righteousness. But he's inviting and demonstrating and offering and wooing because the free gift of God, Romans says, is eternal life. His way brings freedom, not the burden of religious achievement. And I bring that up because we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for another seven weeks until Thanksgiving. And as we journey through Jesus' words, we need to remember what he's doing. He's laying a foundation for our revelation. He's saying, look over here, God's kingdom. You've been upside down, God's kingdom. You've been trapped in religion, God's kingdom. You've been trying to achieve, no, 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 no. God's kingdom. You want righteousness? I freely give it. If we take ourselves out of that place in reading the words of Jesus, it will be the old-timey religious hits. And that brings nothing. But if we keep ourselves in this place, we are invited to experience a kingdom that is eternal and unlike any other. So I just want to encourage you, don't check out. Don't be fearful. Ask him to reveal more of himself to you and for the impact of his righteousness in your life, freely given. Mark, can I pray before I turn on? Jesus, we are, I hope, and I know for me I can say, just undone at your goodness and what you are doing in hearts both then and now, as you illustrate the kingdom of God. And Lord, where where each of us in this room doesn't have full, complete grasp, Lord, we just say more of your revelation of who you are, Jesus, and what you're doing. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that as maybe fears have been touched on today, maybe hesitancies, maybe shame, maybe... um, Maybe brokenness has been touched on today and, and brought up. I just I pray in Jesus' name right now that where the enemy would want to come and say those are the things that are happening, that instead you would come, Holy Spirit, and say restoration and invitation is happening right now in Jesus' name. 
Thank you for your words to us, Jesus. Thank you that you are the word of God, incarnate for us, given freely to us. We worship you. We stand continuing in this series together corporately, excited for what you will say, overjoyed at that question, what's Jesus going to say? Excited. Thank you for who you are, our, our Lord and King. And thank you for who we are. As your word says, those who believed in you, you've given the right to become children of God. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Mark. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City. All of Jesus for everyone.